From high atop Five Bush Media World News Headquarters in Rochester, New York, it is the Top of the Tower podcast. We're brought to you by Shively Labs. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert audio and filter design and manufacturing. And by Yellowtech for broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators. Yellowtech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports. Clear audio from Yellowtech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. I'm your host, Scott Feibush. We are here in a new month on a holiday. It's Canada Day. Hello to all of our Canadian friends. Even if we can't visit you right now, we are thinking about you from this side of the border. And especially today, our guest today, although she is not Canadian, has very close ties to one of Canada's most famous rock and roll exports. Donna Halper is a well-known broadcast historian, the author of numerous books and papers on the topic, and a professor at Lesley University in Cambridge, Mass. And, among other things, takes pride, as you'll hear, in having broken the band Rush into the U.S. market. Of course, they just came out uh, with a tribute video uh, on the anniversary of their Permanent Waves album uh, to their song Spirit of Radio, and we couldn't be a radio podcast without discussing that uh, with her, especially because she makes a cameo appearance in there. And we wanted to talk to her this week also because we are, as you've read in Northeast Radio Watch, mourning the death of one of Boston Top 40 Radio's most important voices and most unusual voices, too. Arnie Woo-Woo Ginsburg died last week at 93 a fixture on the Boston radio and sometimes TV scene for decades, from the very earliest days of Top 40 radio in the 1950s at WBOS and then WMEX, and then later on, not just as a broadcaster on the air, but as a manager, one of the driving forces behind the creation of KISS 108 in the late 70s and of the pioneering video music service V66, WVJV-TV, in the 1980s, and just one of the all-around good guys of Boston Radio. So it was a good opportunity to take a little bit of time to sit down virtually, of course, with Donna from her home near Boston and talk about Rush and talk about Arnie and to start out, of course, also with one of this year's many passings earlier this year, the death of Rush's longtime drummer and lyricist, Neil Peart. Neil and I kept in touch over the years. Neil and I hung out on a few occasions and talked. And Neil's music was the soundtrack of so many people's lives. And in the end, Neil was a private person right up until the final days. I mean, you read a lot of internet stuff about people that claimed they were with him at the end. No, they weren't. They were not, okay? Because I have a pretty good idea who was with him at the end. And it was a really small group of people. It didn't include me, nor did I expect it to. It was family members. It was the members of the band and their families. He did not want people to remember him in any way other than as he was, okay? And that was his choice. That was what he wanted. I honor it. And the people that remember Neil to this day, months later, I still hear from people about, I can't believe he's gone. His music was the soundtrack of our lives. He had such a profound effect on people. So yeah, he's gone, but he's not gone. 
and he gave us what is arguably the greatest song ever written about radio, or at least one of the two or three greatest songs ever written about radio. And now we have this animated video that happens to feature amongst other characters in it, you. Unbelievable, but true. How so how did this happen? Uh, imagine my surprise, okay? So I'm minding my own business one day, and this guy messages me on Facebook uh, from a company called Fantoons. And I'm very familiar with their work. They've done a ton of animation about all kinds of things. And they're like, uh, the guy that's the president of the company, a gentleman named David, uh, gets in touch and he's like, we're doing a commemorative video because it's the 40 year anniversary of the album Permanent Waves and Rush would like us to do something to commemorate it. And so we decided we'd focus on Spirit of Radio and do a history of radio and a history of Rush on the radio because Rush were so influenced by radio growing up, you know, begin the day with a friendly voice. There was a radio station they grew up listening to, and that's the case for many of us. And so they decided, the folks at Fantoons, that they would do the whole thing animated, which with Neil's passing is completely understandable. It gives them the opportunity and the flexibility to bring the band back to life, not just their music. And so they said, well, we'd like to have you in the video. And it's a cartoon. I'm like, I'm going to be a cartoon? Really? Yeah, there are people who think I am a cartoon. Um, but there I was. And they sent me the image so I could look it over. I thought they made me look better than I do in real life. Um, but it was, it was cute. I love the idea. I love the concept. And I love the video. And it's one of these really joyful videos. I mean, yeah, it's true. Radio isn't what it used to be. But it could be again, as long as that spirit of radio lives on. And the fact that Rush were so influenced by radio and that their careers were changed by radio. I mean, it's... <laughs> It is very well known that because of the fact that I played them at WMMS in Cleveland, that's what got them started at a time when many of your younger listeners probably are not aware of how it all used to be done in the era before YouTube, um, back when record companies had promotion men, and they were mostly men. There were a few women gradually. But record companies had promotion men, and the promotion men would bring the records to the radio station every week, and you'd get asked, you know, you got to play this one, and you, this is a big hit, and they all said all the records were big hits. Most of them were not. But as I've told on many occasions, I was sent the original Rush album by somebody whose label had passed on it. They weren't going to sign the band. And a guy named Bob Roper, I'm not going to get into the whole story, but the bottom line is that Bob Roper, in a time when radio was so important, he knew that if these guys could get some airplay, it could make a difference. And so he sent the record to me because he knew I broke new artists. I always had that reputation. And he was like, we're not going to sign these guys, but I think they've got potential. And you know the rest. You know how I dropped the needle and it was a needle and it was a vinyl LP and I still have it. 
And um, I dropped the needle on working man, and the rest is how they say history. Except I didn't know at the time. If you've ever been a music director, and I don't know, have you been a music director, Scott? I have not. Most of my background, as you know, has been over on the news side of things. Okay, but I don't know if in college radio, perhaps, because in college radio back then, everybody did everything. True. Okay. True. And um, if you've ever been a music director, you know that you have an opportunity to really get records played. But you also know there's no guarantee. There was something called turntable hits, which was the DJs loved them. Everybody else... Not so much. And I can name you so many records that at the radio station, the DJs were like, oh my God, this is the best song ever. And the public was just going, here's a picture of me falling asleep. And so there was no guarantee. When I brought that record down to Denny Sanders, there was no guarantee when he played Working Man that the phones were going to light up or that people were going to demand to know where they can buy it. You never know. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And years later, people still remember those early days and remember them fondly. And then there's people that came along in the 80s and in the 90s and etc. But my point is, radio was so influential in the history of Rush that it, it, it really made sense. And it was a beautiful tribute to do the cartoon version of Spirit of Radio. My hat's off to Fantoons. I think they did a wonderful job. And I'm not saying that because I'm in it. I did, yeah, I'm in it for a few seconds. But the video itself is such a beautiful tribute to the role that radio plays in our lives and played in the life of, life of the members of Rush. Absolutely, and not, not entirely coincidentally, if this were a more normal version of 2020 than what we're experiencing, we would be spending a lot of time, I think, talking about the, quote, centennial, unquote, of radio broadcasting. I'm sure there will be at least a little bit of a deal come November uh, about KDKA and, uh, and their but centennial. But, as, but it shouldn't be. No as offense. You and I have discussed no so offense. Times, as yeah. we're a couple of media historians, I don't want to take away anything from KDKA. It was a pioneering radio station. It did a lot of stuff that nobody else did, but it didn't do it first. It wasn't the first station in the United States. It wasn't the first station in the world, the universe, the planet. It was probably the third, okay? And you and I both know that 8MK, later WWJ in Detroit, still on the air, okay? Went on the air in August of 1920. And also little 1XE at Medford Hillside on the campus of Tufts, which is today Tufts University. Back then it was Tufts College. We have evidence. I wrote a scholarly article about this for a journal. I'll send it to anyone that wants it. 1XE, later WGI, was absolutely on the air before KDKA, and so was AMK. WWJ. So the truth is, this is the 100th anniversary of commercial radio. Let's all applaud, but let's be historically accurate. Please, I beg you, okay? And, and we won't be because God bless the folks at KDKA. They've got a humongous budget and they've been beating this drum for years. And like I said, 
I'm not trying to take anything away from them. But if we really want to be accurate, it's Canada Day. What was the real first radio station in North America? Probably XWA in XWA, Montreal. Absolutely. Thank you. Which became CFCF, Canada's First, Canada's First, which went on the air by all accounts and by research in December of 1919. So there you have it. And which had a scheduled broadcast at the end of June of 1920 that they're marking the centennial of up there. And God bless Canada Post for the philatelists among us. They put out a, a very nice set of stamps commemorating 100 years of radio broadcasting in Canada with a nice little shout out to XWA and one of the stamps. Absolutely, I, I have it. Too. They also, the Postal Service, God bless them, put out a commemorative for Rush, which, you know, mm. applause, applause. Oh, I um, my hands in that one. I didn't get that. Oh, one. yeah. Um, cool. But seriously, yeah, definitely 100th, year, 100th anniversary of commercial radio in the United States. But anytime you hear folks saying KDKA is the first station, mm, KDKA had a publicity department. God bless them. I wish I had such a publicity department. They went across the country. They play Westinghouse, their then parent company, placed ads in every magazine. They told their story. You know what really mystifies me, though, as a media historian? It's this. AMK which became WWJ in Detroit, okay? They were owned by a newspaper. They were owned by the Detroit News. And despite that, the owners played such a small game. They never really tried to publicize the station outside of Michigan. I never understood that. Okay, fine, was, I wasn't was even threat, born back then. It was a then, threat to their established business, I, as we've seen yeah, so often. I know. But if you've got this unique thing that you're doing that no one else, and by the way, they did election returns. Hello? One of the things that KDKA said, oh yeah, the election returns on November 2nd. Uh, the state election returns in Michigan on August 31st, and it's pretty well documented, front page of the Detroit News, hello? But as you and I have both seen, very often, publicity, transcends reality. You know, perception, if you can create a perception that X happened, oh boy, you'll get all these people that believe it. So let's tip our hats to KDKA, but let's also tip our hats to XWA up in Montreal and um, 8MK in Detroit and little 1XE, God rest its soul, the home of so many famous people in Boston who weren't famous at the time, but who went on to be famous, including Big Brother Bob Emery, who was a legend in children's show broadcasting. Absolutely. So if we're talking about Boston legends, this provides the obvious segue at this point to talk about the Boston legends uh, whom we've lost in the last couple of weeks. And uh, obviously, Arnie Wu Ginsburg is, is the biggest. Let's take a moment, since you mentioned him as we were getting ready to, to start this podcast, too. Let's mention Jim Sands for a moment, because I think that that kind of just very smooth as silk broadcaster, we don't see that kind of broadcaster anymore who can just who's so versatile, who can handle any format that's thrown at him. And, and he did work a lot of different formats. Yeah. There's a little interesting backstory that 
some of your listeners may or may not know. Arnie Ginsberg and Jim Sands lived in an era where whatever format you were doing, you never used your real name. In fact, the idea of what is called house names has been around since the 1920s. The late great John Shepard III, who was the founder of the Yankee Network, which was a news and programming network in New England, okay, um, he came up with, for his own Boston station, the idea of house names. In other words, he would name an announcer, you know, John Jones, Mary Smith, it was always this generic name, and when the person left, as people often did in those days, the next person would be that same name. So if you had, you know, Dan Donovan, you might have 20 Dan Donovans, none of whom were really Dan Donovan. In addition to house names, there was also this myth, and it was a myth, that people didn't like ethnic names. And this wasn't just directed at Jews. Jim Sands, his real name was Jim Samprakis. He was Greek. And then there was Bill Marlowe, whose real name was William Molia. He was Italian. And so many announcers who had ethnic names, whether Irish, Italian, Greek, African-American, if it sounded ethnic, you were not supposed to use it. You were supposed to be this generic voice with this generic name, and okay, fine, I sort of get it. Early microphones really distorted the voice. Certain sounds didn't sound, I, I get it. But you know what, that ship sailed. Let people be who they are. But no, for years, people had to change their names. Arnie wouldn't do it. The, one of the first things I loved about Arnie Ginsberg was that he was Arnie Ginsberg. That was his real name. Oh, you think it's an ethnic name? Too bad for you. I'm Arnie Ginsberg. End of story. I mean, he never made a big deal about it. He just wouldn't change it. And he was surrounded by a whole bunch of people who not only did change it, but in many cases, they had to change it. They were told to change it. So yeah, Jim Sands, the famous Jim Sands, he did Top 40. He did oldies. Oh, my God. He was up in Maine. He was down here in Massachusetts. And you're right. He had this smooth delivery. It didn't matter what format he was doing. He sounded professional. He sounded like he was just having fun on the radio. And that's what it was about. And it's a shame that he passed. I mean, he lived well into his late 80s, but still. I mean, you and I were talking, we'll get back to Arnie in a second. You and I were talking about the fact that there are so many veterans that are just leaving us. I mean, Carl Reiner. Okay, Carl Reiner dies at the age of 98. Sharp as a tack until the feels very end. It still feels too young somehow. I know. And, and I mean, old. here was a guy who wrote so many great comedies. He produced stuff. He and Mel Brooks did the 2,000-year-old man. They did all these skits that, that are timeless. I can't imagine a world without Carl in it. No. It's, it's just so sad. I was talking to Judy Valentine. Your listeners may or may not know Judy. Judy Valentine 
was on the radio in Boston in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. She's still with us. She's 96. She also is sharp as a tack. And we were just talking about that the other day, about all the people that are in their late 80s, early 90s, that are just, they're leaving. And their influence lives on. But that institutional memory is such a loss. That knowledge of what it was like back then, because they were there. It's just fascinating to listen to the stories. I know some people are like, oh my God, grandpa's telling those stories again. Do yourself a solid. If you still got a grandpa who can tell you stories, make mental notes. Because when he's gone, those stories will die with them. And a lot of times that's what enhances our understanding about how people lived back then. And somebody especially like an Arnie Ginsberg, who was not only influential, I mean, you can look at a lot of guys and say, well, he was big at the beginning of Top 40, or he was big in the FM era, or he was big in the era of the VJ. Then you have an Arnie Ginsberg who somehow managed to have been there and have been important in so many of those different phases, to have been on WBOS at the very beginning, to have been on WMEX in the heyday of AM Top 40, to have had a cup of coffee at WRKO before the non-compete hit, and then Kiss 108, and then V66. I mean, this Absolutely. is... And he got into ownership. And Well, I, I believe he owned a little station up in Sanford, Maine, even in like the 1960s. It wasn't well known because it probably would have been considered a conflict of some kind. But the truth is, Arnie was a survivor. He reinvented himself constantly. And he always adapted. He did some sales. He did some engineering. I mean, you name it. If it needed to be done, Arnie would do it. But for me, and I blogged about this the other day, Arnie was such an inspiration to me in a way that he probably didn't understand. And when I got to finally meet him and kind of bow before him and say, you know, it's thanks to you that I got into radio, the thing that influenced me was something that Arnie couldn't help. Back in those days, all DJs were expected to have a big, deep voice and talk like this. And that was always used when I was growing up. For folks that don't know me, I'm 73. Most people don't take me for it. I think I'm still young and cute, but I am, in fact, 73. And when I was growing up, there were all of these rules about what girls could and could not do. The society was very gendered. And one of the reasons they always used, they, meaning the guys that were in radio, one of the reasons they always used for women not being in radio was that we didn't have a big, deep voice. And Arnie didn't have a big, deep voice. Arnie's voice was kind of like, and I'm not making fun of him. I mean, he literally, yeah. he would joke about his voice. He would call himself old aching adenoids, old leather lungs. And one of the things that, happened was it was kind of accidental that he got on the air. He was an engineer. And when he did get on the air, I don't think he expected that people would warm to him the way they did. They loved him. He was every man. He was the person that didn't have the big deep voice. He was the person who kept his name. He was just Arnie. And he had the bells and he had the whistles and he sounded like he was having so much fun on the air. 
and he got people to sing jingles for him, and he sang jingles, and he was never afraid to have fun on the radio. And the truth is, as a girl growing up, when I would hear him, I would think, wow, you're supposed to have a big, deep voice. Arnie doesn't have a big, deep voice. And you're supposed to be like very light, very serious. Arnie's not serious. And I said to myself, what a great gig, entertaining people on the radio. I was a lonely kid. I was one of the only Jews in my neighborhood at a time when anti-Semitism was still a thing and was still overt. I mean, it wasn't as bad as the Holocaust, thank God. But some of those attitudes were still around. And it was so cool to hear somebody who had a Jewish name, who didn't have a big deep voice, and who was wildly popular and wildly successful. And so I'm thinking, you know, if Arnie can do it, I can do it. And it really inspired me to want to get into radio. No, it was nothing he personally said to me, but I know that listening to him whenever I was feeling discouraged or depressed or whatever, that's the thing about top 40 DJs. And that's the one thing I, I doubt that younger listeners today have that experience because they can be their own DJ. They can post a YouTube video. They can go on Spotify and create a playlist. But for us, we would look forward to hearing our favorite DJ. We felt like they were talking directly to us. Marshall McLuhan, the great media scholar, said that radio is the most intimate mass media. It makes you feel like you're eavesdropping on the world. And that's how I always felt when I would do broadcast band DXing, listening for distant stations. I would be attracted to the DJs that sounded the most personable. I loved personality radio. And I wanted so much to be on the radio so that I could entertain people and lift them up the way people like Arnie had done that for me. And the idea that you could be so successful as a DJ that there would be a sandwich named after you and that people would line up at night outside Adventure Car Hop to get their Ginsburgers. Absolutely. You still remember the Adventure Car Hop jingle? I'm not going to put your listeners through it, but um, sometimes on that there's a program here in Boston on WBC radio, uh, Morgan White and Morgan is a trivia expert and periodically he would do these things like you know do you remember this jingle or do you remember that jingle because people really did they sang the jingles i mean i still remember dick summer did an overnight show on wbc and that there was the nightlight and he had this thing called the nightlight password it was one hen two ducks three squawking geese it was actually an old vaudeville routine and if you called up and if you could recite it, you know, I'll take the eighth caller, you know. Mm -hmm. And Arnie did that with the Ginsburger, which was a sandwich that was from Adventure Car Hop. And, if, you know, and people sang the jingle. It was just amazing what people would do. Top 40 was fun. I mean, okay, it had its excesses. It had 20 minutes of commercials and blah, blah, blah. But it was also a lot of fun. And the people that did it the best, people like Arnie, People that did it the best, people like Dick Summer, Bruce Bradley, every city, you know, Dan Ingram, okay? It didn't matter what city you were in. Everybody had a great top 40 DJ who you just couldn't imagine not listening to 
because they always had something fun and entertaining to say, and they sounded like they were having a good time. Now, agree, these are human beings. They don't always have a great time, okay? I mean, I'm a professor these days. I get up in front of a classroom. I see my role as being partly informative, partly entertaining. And there's days when I don't feel like doing either one. But you get up there and you do it. Do you always feel like going to work? Every, of course you do. No, you, of course you don't. Because this is humanity. But these DJs, when I would listen to them, I didn't know they had a cold. I didn't know they had a headache. I didn't know they had just broken up with their wife or whatever, whatever. All I knew was they were having fun. They were entertaining us. They knew interesting and cool stuff about the artists. They knew the artists. Sometimes they had the artists on their show. You never knew what was gonna happen. Those were very, very influential days for many of us. And tying it back to that Rush video, that's some of the recollections that the members of the band had about how the morning DJ was a friendly voice somebody that got your day started, somebody that played not just the music, but came up with the interesting information to get your day going. That's what I miss. That's what I'd like to see in radio again, because live and local still works. And that I think is what I was looking for when I was driving into Toronto. And instinctively I said, oh my God, something just happened to Neil. I want to hear what CFNY has to say about this. Mm -hmm. And okay, granted, CFNY isn't exactly what CFNY was anymore. And well, same with WMMS in Cleveland. I mean, it's just, a, yeah, and just sitting there waiting to hear them finally acknowledge something had happened. You want to hear that voice. I know. You want know. to have that that feeling of community. That uh, that I think is a is a good place to wrap this up. Donna Halper, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. Let me ask you before we go. In addition. Uh, to your, your academic work in general. You working on any specific bits of broadcast history right now that we ought to know about? I'm always working on broadcast history. I just did a biography. I do a lot of research for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. And I did a biography of Jocko Maxwell, the mm -hmm. first African-American sportscaster on radio, who's illustrious career went back to 1929 and who even in the era of segregation he interviewed everyone white ball players african-american ball players i mean there's nobody that did not come on his radio show he's a forgotten hero of broadcasting and i have a biographical sketch about him up online now and that's the kind of stuff i'm up to you must send me the link so I can include it uh, in with this podcast. Absolutely. I have I some wanna, other I stuff too. I don't want to take up your time, but thank you so much for having me on. You love radio. I love radio. Your listeners love radio. Thank you. And our thanks to Donna Halper. Always nice to be with her again. A little bit of history, by the way. It has been close to 30 years now. Uh, since I started doing radio shows with Donna. We go back uh, in Boston to Bob Bittner's WJIB when he was just starting that up in the early 1990s uh, and starting to do a, a semi-regular show called Let's Talk About Radio. And Donna and I were among his most frequent guests and had some wonderful times sitting in his little studio in the storage unit uh, center there in Cambridge. 
and talking about what was happening back then in Boston radio. And boy, our minds would have exploded if we could have imagined some of what's going on now in Boston radio. You will find links on our website, fibush.com, to a whole bunch of the things that Donna was talking about in today's episode, including several of her articles and, of course, that fantastic Spirit of Radio animated video. And I'm sure we will have Donna on again very soon on the podcast, although not perhaps for the 100th anniversary of KDKA in November, because it's not the 100th anniversary of commercial radio, is it now? You know better now. It is the Top of the Tower podcast. We are brought to you by Yellow Tech. For broadcasters, podcasters, and content creators, Yellow Tech offers solutions for clean, efficient studios with the Mika mic arms and monitor supports, clear audio from Yellow Tech's IXM recording microphone and USB sound cards, along with its compact mixer, the Intellimix. To learn more, go to yellowtech.com. And we're brought to you by Shively. Shively Labs is a division of Howell Laboratories. Shively is a proud employee-owned company with over 50 years of expert antenna and filter design and manufacturing. Stay tuned. We will be back on and off over the summer with more editions of the Top of the Tower podcast.